following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Morning, church. Great to see you guys. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here, teaching pastor at Missio, and uh, really grateful that you'd spend some time with us this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, open it to Acts chapter 19. Um, we are going to try to get through all of Acts chapter 19 today, so um, it's a lot. It's 41 verses, so we'll see how that goes. I made it through the first, so we'll see. Uh, if you are new around here and want to be known, uh, you can fill out a Connect card. It's that blue and uh, gray card that you see in the seat back in front of you. That also can be used for prayer requests. If there's a way that our church family can pray for you, uh, we'd love to do that. So you can just fill that out at any point during the gathering. Place it in the black boxes in the back there on your way out. And uh, we'd love to know who you are and know how we can pray for you and help get you involved here uh, at, the, at the church. Um, you may have noticed as well as you walked in, uh, there's a banner and a bunch of cards on the wall in the hallway there. That's from Peak Academy. Uh, if you remember back in December, we did some collections for um, gloves and hats and w- warm socks and all that kind of stuff for uh, the kids at Peak Academy. Peak Academy is a charter school that exists to help uh, bridge that achievement gap between uh, generally uh, lower income, generally minority students, and uh, their counterparts. And so uh, we've decided to kind of partner with that school. They're right down the street, literally. And uh, they sent us a bunch of thank you cards just for uh, the, the involvement of you all in serving that need. So when you get a chance, maybe next week, we'll leave it up for a couple weeks, but I'd love for you to kind of just read some of those cards on your way in and hear the appreciation of those uh, students and faculty as well. Okay, uh, Acts chapter 19 is where we is, where we is, where we is. <laughs> wow. The real me is coming through. Um, <laughs> didn't know I was from Haywood County, did you? I'm just kidding, <laughs> kidding. It's a joke. <laughs> I'd be from Florida. Um, Man. Last week we left off with Paul in Athens, but we were in Acts chapter 17 uh, because Jimmy, Pastor Jimmy, preached for me the week before that, and he went to Corinth in chapter 18. So what I want to do before we jump into chapter 19 is I want to just summarize the rest of chapter 18 for us so we kind of know what's going on in the story. Paul left Corinth, which is sort of right there above the word journey on your map, okay? Uh, He left Corinth, and he headed east to Ephesus. Uh, So Paul had already been to Ephesus. He went there, he went into the synagogues, he started telling about Jesus, and they wanted him to stay, but he was like, no, 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 I I gotta leave. So he left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and then he journeyed back on uh, all the way to Jerusalem before making his way up. Uh, if you look sort of mid-screen all the way to the right, that's the city of Antioch, which if you remember, is sort of the home base for the mission of God at this point. They sent Paul and Barnabas, they sent Paul and Silas on his second missionary journey. So he eventually makes his way back to Antioch. Uh, this is the end of his second missionary journey, and then the beginning of his third is what we see in the end of Acts chapter 18. So Paul leaves Antioch rested and refreshed, And he begins to head west, back through that region of Galatia, encouraging and strengthening the churches that he already planted. So what I want you to see there is that Paul is driven just as much by the love of God as he is the mission of God. He he cares that unbelievers are coming to faith, but he also cares that the believers are growing in their understanding of the gospel and their identity in Christ as well. And so this is the second time we have seen him go back through to visit these churches that he planted and, and, ta- and care for them, understand the issues that they're facing, uh, you know, shepherding, teaching, um, helping them grow in their identity and in their faith. And so that's what he's doing. Meanwhile, we understand in Acts chapter 18, there's a man named Apollos, who's a Jewish believer from uh, Alexandria, which is northern Africa. He becomes, uh, he is a believer in, in Jesus. He's been discipled by someone, we don't know who. Uh, but he makes his way into Ephesus. And the text tells us in Acts chapter 18 that he's a very gifted speaker, that he's fervent in spirit, which means he's full of the Holy Spirit, so he is a believer. Um, but, and he loves Jesus, and he's got, you know, he's got the truth about Jesus, but he's got some holes and some gaps in his doctrine. And so while he's preaching, Priscilla and Aquila, who were trained by Paul, are listening to his message, and they're kind of going, eh, kind of. 
And so they kind of pull him aside, and with humility and with grace, they give him further understanding. Historians uh, would say it was probably around the issue of baptism. So he understood John's baptism of repentance as a forerunner to Christ, but perhaps he didn't understand that in Christ, believers must be baptized, right? That they're identifying with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, that they're identifying in union with Christ. And so baptism is a... um, it's not essential, but it's important for the believer, right, to take that step of being baptized to identify with Jesus. So he's armed and loaded with good doctrine now, and he goes back to Corinth. So he goes uh, west to the city of Corinth. And if you remember, if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 3, Paul says this. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who gave the growth. That's what's happening. Paul, uh, Paul is making his way towards Ephesus, west through Galatia. Apollos is making his way west to Corinth, and Apollos is going to be the one who primarily uh, is giving growth and maturity to the, to the Corinthian believers. He's watering what Paul planted, all right? So we're going to pick up the text in chapter 19, but I wanted you to see that for a couple reasons. Number one, Paul is the primary one who gets highlighted in the rest of the book of Acts, but it's clear that he had other co-laborers. There were other people Um, like Apollos, who were very gifted, who were full of the Spirit, who had good doctrine, who were helping to to see those churches in in this region grow and mature, okay? So all of us have a role to play. Um, Today, what we're going to look at is the impact of the gospel on a city. Primarily, we're looking at the city of Ephesus in chapter 19 of the book of Acts. We're going to see what what impact, what kind of impact the gospel has on a city. So rather than read all 41 verses at once like I usually do and then pray, I'm going to pray now, and we're just going to read a chunk at a time and talk about it. Sound good? Good. Doesn't matter because I'm doing it anyway, but I thought I'd ask. Um, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for these men and women. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to study the Word of God. It, it is your Word, living and active, um, and by your Spirit, you use your Word Uh, to teach, to correct, to instruct, to rebuke, and to show the beauty and glory of Jesus. And that's what we're after. We are here to see Jesus. We are here to appreciate, to understand, to worship Jesus in his glory. And so help us to to do that today. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill me, strengthen and empower me to rightly divide this word so that your people uh, might hear from you uh, and that all things would point to the glory of Christ this morning. We ask this in his beautiful name. And everybody said, Amen. All right, let's jump in here. Acts chapter 19, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Uh Uh-oh. And he said, well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That's Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They began to speak in tongues and prophesy. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. All right, we'll stop there for a minute. If you're a note taker, you can write this down. My first point is that the gospel redeems individuals. The gospel redeems individuals. So as I said, Apollos is making his way west, I guess west would be this way for you, west across the Aegean Sea, and Paul is making his way west through land, through Galatia, and then he lands in Ephesus. Ephesus is modern-day Turkey. Uh, It was then a city of about 250,000 people, so roughly the population of Buncombe County, and uh, it had a great port, had really good roads, and so that made it a, a leader in trade and in commerce, and for most first century cities that had good ports and good roads that were leaders in trade and commerce, they were also ripe with spiritual activity because people would come to Ephesus from all these places and they would be bringing with them all their ideas and beliefs and gods, okay? So in Ephesus, you had 50 plus gods that were worshiped. 
you had all, uh, it was kind of a hub for um, magic and occultism and, um, and spirituality. And the, the primary god of Ephesus was Artemis, also known to the Romans as Diana. Uh, Artemis was the god of the hunt, the god of wild animals, or goddess, I should say, of, of this keeps cutting out, it's weird. Um, the goddess of the hunt, goddess of wild animals, also, weirdly, the goddess of chastity and childbirth. Not sure how that works, but nevertheless, that's who she was. And she had a great temple, the Temple of Artemis. You might have heard of this, right? One of the ancient uh, seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world. And so this, this building was the biggest building in the area. Uh, it drove most of the economy. So kind of think similar to Biltmore Estate for our city. Uh, the Temple of Artemis was like the tourist attraction that everybody went. Uh, that was the place it drove the economy. And really, the Temple of Artemis functioned a lot like a bank. And so all this money flowed in and flowed out. They actually gave loans out from the Temple of Artemis. And so it was a big deal. So Paul comes into the city, and he finds 12 kind of disciples, okay? It says disciples in the text, but it doesn't mean they're disciples of Jesus. They're disciples of John the Baptist. And we find this out because he starts to ask them questions, right? um, One commentator said they they were almost Christians, which is to say they're not Christians at all. And here's what happens. Paul interacts with these 12 men. And, um, and they're good, clean, church-going boys, you know? But after a while, he starts to realize there is no evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in these boys' lives. Which begs, the, so he, he starts to ask the question, hey, did you receive the Spirit when you were baptized? And they were like, the who? The Holy who? Right? That's a problem <laughs> when you don't know who the Holy Spirit is. Because Jesus says, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Paul will say later in Romans that if you don't have the Spirit dwelling within you, you do not belong to him. Okay, so these, these were disciples of John the Baptist. These are guys who were following John the Baptist 20 years before, and John the Baptist had said, hey, look, there's one coming after me. You should put your hope and trust in him, and uh, I'm going to baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with fire with the Holy Spirit. And apparently they missed that whole talk, okay? They were not there for that sermon. Uh, and so they were clinging to this one who was to come, but he already came. And they had no idea for 20 years, Okay. And so Paul has to quickly explain to them the gospel, okay? Oh, Jesus is the one John promised was coming. Uh, Jesus lived a life we couldn't live, perfect and sinless in every way. He's God in the flesh. Uh, Jesus died in our place for our sins to be the atonement for us. Like he took all of our sin and shame and guilt on himself. He died in our place as our substitute. He rose from the grave, conquering sin and death and hell for us so that we can be forgiven, and we simply come to him with empty hands, and we receive the finished work of Jesus, and we can be saved. And he, and he tells this to these 12 disciples, and they believe, and they're baptized, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak in these other tongues. It's like, it's like a mini Pentecost, or maybe better yet, Pentecost caught up to them. Now, some people think this is always normative, that when you come to faith, you have these miraculous experiences of the Holy Spirit, and that's not true. We've seen that even in the book of Acts, that it's not true, that some people come to faith and do not have those miraculous experiences of the Spirit. This is a confirmation to these Jewish believers that Paul's message is true. That's what happened with Pentecost, right? That the Spirit fell on the Jewish believers to show them that the message of Jesus was actually true and real, and this is what's happening with these believers, But here's my point in all of this, okay? This story, these guys were followers of John the Baptist for 20 years, went to synagogue for 20 years, and totally missed Jesus. This is why every Sunday, in every gathering, in every sermon, whether I'm the one preaching or someone else is preaching, it is our aim and our goal that the gospel message is proclaimed everywhere in every message. Because it is possible to be part of a church, to grow up in church, to know the Bible, to be very moral, and to be lost as last year's Easter egg. And I have seen the majority of the people who have come to faith in this church grew up in church. And they moved to Asheville to get away from southern deep-fried moral Christian religion. And they would say to me, you know, I grew up in church my whole life and I never heard the gospel. And I want to believe that's not true. I want to believe they just didn't have ears to hear it at the time. But the reality is, a lot of churches do not preach the gospel. 
Right? Tim Keller once said that many pastors don't know how to preach the gospel from the Bible. They don't know how to preach the gospel from the Old Testament. They don't even know how to preach the gospel from the New Testament. They don't even know how to preach the gospel from the Gospels. <laughs> okay? So it's, it's imperative that we proclaim because some of you, some of you have grown up in church your whole life. You know the Bible. You live morally. But you have this idea of God that he's a grumpy old man in the sky who has a scale. And if you do a lot of good stuff, it's going to outweigh a lot of the bad stuff you did. And I mean, Jesus is in there somewhere, but really what matters is the scale. And if I did enough good, that outweighs my bad. And at the end of my life, God's going to look at me and he's going to go, all right, good enough. And he's going to let me in. And that message is from hell. That has nothing to do. That in fact undermines the very reason that Jesus came. Because the reality is none of us are good by nature or by choice. So we are all on one side of the scale and condemned. And Jesus is on the other side of the scale in his perfect life, in his sacrificial death, in his resurrection. And he brings us to faith. He brings us to salvation. And if there's, if there's any part of you right now who thinks that Jesus even gets you 99% of the way, but the rest is up to you, you are not a Christian. You're not, and I love you enough to tell you so. Now, here's the reality. A lot of people over this last two years with shutdowns and isolation and all that have maybe rightly started to question the things they believe and deconstruct a little bit and wonder like, oh, what? And, and some of them have found out, you know what? I don't know that I believe this gospel. And you know what they've done? They've stopped participating. And I'm like, no, 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 that's the wrong decision. The right decision is repent and believe in the gospel. Like, you already know all the songs just by the album. You know what I'm saying? You know the plays. Just join the team. This is why Paul later tells us that it's important that we examine ourselves to see whether we are actually in the faith. Not to frighten us, but to confirm. Like, can you? I know I use this analogy all the time. I know a lot of people really find it resonates with them. For some people, faith is like a, a light switch that's just on or off. It was all dark. Then it was like floodlights and you came to faith, right? Radical conversion. Amazing. Praise God. Many others, it's like a dimmer switch. Over time, things just got gradually brighter and more clear and, and more colorful. And one day you looked around and you were like, oh, I think I'm a Christian. Like I believe this stuff. Okay. Do you either have a moment or a series of events that you can look back to and point to that indicate for you that the truth of the gospel, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus became real to your soul? Because without that evidence, right, without a moment in time or a series of events that you can look back on and go, you know, I, it was this conversation, it was this person, it was this study, it was this message, it was this, that, that led me towards this path, and, and I came to this point of realizing, yes, Jesus is real, and I, I received him, and I, I repented of sin. Unless that has happened, I don't know that you actually believe. Now, I'm, we don't need time stamps on this stuff, right? But you think back, and you go, yeah, my journey was this and this and this, and now I, I, I'm sure that I'm a believer in Christ. I've given my life to him. Jesus does not want you to settle for some slightly Christianized version of morality that is going to send you straight to hell. He, he came to give you life, life abundant. It's the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus came that we might have life. So some of you might have this, this story like John Wesley. You know, um, if any of you grew up like either Wesleyan or Methodist, you're, you are a product of Charles and John Wesley. John Wesley grew up, uh, his dad was a pastor, so one strike against him there. Uh, sorry, bud. Um, <laughs> his dad was a pastor, okay? He grew up in the church. He actually became an ordained minister in the Church of England. He was commissioned as a missionary to America from England to reach the Native, the Native Americans. And he wasn't a Christian. And he didn't realize it until he got to America trying to convert Native Americans. And he was like, this is not going well. Uh, and he met some Moravian Christians while he was in America. 
And he was so taken aback at their spiritual vitality that over time, he became convinced that he himself was not a believer. And so he made his way back to England, and he was invited by some of these Moravians to attend some Bible studies with them. And in, in his own words, this is what he says. In the evening, I went very unwillingly. Some of you know what that's like. <laughs> but you're going to get a free lunch out of this, so whatever. I went very unwillingly to a meeting where one was reading Luther's, that's Martin Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. So he's not even reading the Bible yet, just the Luther's notes and preface to the letter to the Romans. At about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And it's in that moment that John Wesley came into the kingdom of God. I wonder about you. When did you enter the kingdom of God? For some of you, it might be today. There might be a realization that you have never actually crossed that threshold of faith. It's just been assumed your whole life. And you're realizing, I don't know that I actually know Jesus. And you can today. You can turn from sin, turn from self, and turn to him. And, and with empty hands of faith, receive the finished work of Christ for you. For you, for you, for you, for you, especially for you. No, I'm just kidding. For, especially for me, for all of us. So Paul preaches in the synagogues for like three months, okay, which is a long time for him. Usually he gets kicked out in a couple weeks, uh, but they're receptive. But over time, okay, some believe, others are hardened. The Puritans used to say that the same sun, right, that melts the ice hardens the clay. Some believe, some are hardened, and they serve controversy once again. So he moves out of the synagogue to the Hall of Tyrannus, which is basically like a community center. So you'd have like a sewing class, a knitting class. Uh, that's the same thing, I guess, uh, yoga class, and then Bible study. And uh, at, at this time, um, they would have like a long siesta period in the workday. So they worked from early morning till about 11, from 11 to 4 would kind of be this siesta time because it was brutally hot. And that was the time that Paul maximized to preach the Bible. And then they'd go back to work from 4 until dark. Um, and so Paul, a tent maker, right, working a job, he would take that break for two years and proclaim the gospel in the hall of Tyrannus. And the text tells us here that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And we think, how can that be? And it's, it's because of this. Um, again, Ephesus being a hub, a place where everybody came, people would come in, they would hear Paul's message, and then they would take that message back with them once they believed it. They would take it back to their town, to their city, and churches would be birthed because these other people, for instance, a man named Epaphras, Okay, he comes into Ephesus, he hears the gospel, believes, and he takes the gospel back with him to Colossae. So we get the letter to the Colossians. Paul did not plant that church. He wrote the letter to the church, but he didn't plant it. It was Epaphras who heard Paul preach in Ephesus. Many scholars think that uh, the seven letters that are written to the seven churches in the book of Revelation um, were churches that were started from people who heard Paul preach the gospel in Ephesus and then took it back to their homes. So in that way, Ephesus became a new hub for church planting right? Paul stationed there, people coming to him, him teaching them the Bible, and then them going back the message and churches being planted. And Lord willing, by the grace of God, that's our aim for Missio Dei, that he would allow us to be a hub, that kind of hub for, for disciple making and church planting in Western North Carolina, that people from every county in the 828 would be able to come meet Jesus, grow as a disciple, and go back equipped with the gospel so that we might see disciples made in churches planted throughout the 828 for God's glory and for the good of those who don't even know him yet. Amen? So, point two. I've spent a long time on one, one point. Hope you packed a lunch. Uh, so let's look at verse 11. I'll try to go faster with the rest of it. I needed to spend a long time on that one. You guys with me? Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. I mean, that's crazy, right? 
Then some of their itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I love this, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. (laughs) Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, "Uh uh-oh, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them. Remember, there are seven dudes against one dude. He leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. If you enter a fight with pants on, and you leave that fight without pants on, you lost. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. All right, we'll stop there. My second point, if you're a note taker, is that the gospel renews communities. The gospel renews communities. Uh, somehow, some way, the Holy Spirit had uniquely anointed Paul and miracles were happening. Now, the text is very careful to tell us that God was doing miracles through Paul, not that Paul was doing miracles. That's a very important distinction, okay? Um, these, these handkerchiefs and aprons, as I mentioned, Paul was a tent maker. Literally, he made tents. And so in a hot Mediterranean climate, you sweat a lot. And uh, so he would have like basically a do-rag or a sweatband and an apron. And when he was done working, he would throw them down and someone would touch them and they would be healed. And they're like, well, we got to get these things out to people, right? But there was no white suits. There was no 1-800 numbers. There was no, you know, call to sow your faith seed and send this money in to get healed. No, 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 no. This power was simply accompanying and confirming the proclamation of the gospel. But in every branch of faith and spirituality, there are folk who get fixated on the wrong things. Uh, Some people get really fixated on evil spirits and demonic activity and such. Um, And so there are these guys, these seven sons of Sceva, who apparently were a son of a high priest, although his name doesn't appear in any historical record, so maybe he was a self-proclaimed high priest. But they got into exorcism, which was not part of Orthodox Judaism. Okay, so they had sort of left Orthodoxy a while ago. And, And it makes sense because in Ephesus... Occultism and spirituality and magic were very popular, like manipulating the spirits to get what you want was very popular. And so these guys felt like, hey, we can make a living off this. Okay? So they make themselves exorcists. Now, Paul is getting some traction with Jesus. He's healing people in Jesus' name. And these guys are going, all right, let's give that a whirl. (laughs) Okay? But they don't know Jesus. And so I'll tell you, is there power in the name of Jesus? Absolutely. But only for those who belong to him. These guys don't belong to him. And so they approach this demon. I wouldn't recommend that. And they say, we adjure you by the, by the Jesus that Paul proclaims. Like, we're once removed from this. We don't know who he is. We're just saying we're going to use his name as some kind of incantation. And the demon talks back to them. Problem number two. And he goes, okay, I know Jesus. Isn't it funny? All the demons in the Bible know who Jesus is. They know exactly who he is. A lot of people are mushy and confused about Jesus, but the demons know exactly who he is. Jesus we know. Paul we're familiar with. It's causing a little disturbance in the dark world over here for us. Who the heck are you guys? And then beats the clothes off of them, all right? Like this is more than a beating. This is a soul wound, okay? Um, Naked and afraid. That's how they leave this fight. So, of course, news like this is going to spread. I mean, what what that tells me is all that magic and spirituality that happened in Ephesus was basically powerless because they'd never seen anything like this. But upon the name of Jesus being proclaimed, the demonic world is going, whoa, 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 
right? And, and beats up these guys through this one guy. And so everyone's like, well, there must be something, something really important about the name of Jesus. And here's what happens. Reverence for God is growing in the city of Ephesus. People are beginning to praise the name of Jesus in the city of Ephesus. Revival is breaking out in the city of Ephesus. I don't know what it's going to take to bring revival to the city of Asheville, but I'm praying that God would do it. Amen? That amen was weak. And the greatest miracle of all is that people are being saved. They're confessing. They are repenting. They're turning away from sin and idolatry. There is a realization in people that this new life that they have in Christ is incompatible with their old ways of living. And a change must take place. So there's an old Puritan named Thomas Chalmers. And he wrote a book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And his basic premise in the book is that when we have affection for Christ, then things that we used to have affection for will lose their, their draw. So he says things like, until sin become bitter, Christ will not become sweet. But I think the other way around is, is a little better. Until Christ becomes sweet, our sin will not be bitter, right? So these people are realizing, oh, I trust in Jesus now. That means... Following Jesus means these old ways have to be put down. I have to let go of some things. And so these people who are involved in occultism, who are involved in magic and all this other kind of spirituality, they come and they're like, all right, we're done with all this stuff. Just take it away. We, we don't want it anymore. I was trying to think of a modern equivalent of this because though magic, like white magic, still happens even in our city, right? There are people involved in occultism right now in our city, but for most of us in the room, that doesn't affect us. So what would be a modern day equivalent of bringing all these books in and burning them? And you know what I discovered? It would be like all of us taking these little demonic devices and putting them in a pile and rolling a steamroller over them. And it's not the device, right? but, but it's, it's what you can access through the device. So it would be like us saying, all right, take away the TikTok and the Instagram and all the social media that I continually, incessantly look at, and all it does is fuel my shame and my insecurity because I'm comparing myself to others, and it fuels my envy. Take away Pornhub and all this access to all this stuff that fuels lust in me and, and, and causes me to act out in ways that do not bring satisfaction or glorify God. Take away from me this endless news cycle that does nothing. It does not inform me. You know what it does? It increases my anxiety. Take away all the celebrity gossip that just fuels my idolatry of other human beings. Take away the constant ticker and the stock market feed that makes me rise and fall emotionally with where things are that day in the market. Take it away. Because Jesus is more important. There are things in your lives, if you want to follow Jesus, that you have got to let go of. Once and for all. And the beauty of this is that when the people who had been, who had been introduced to Jesus came to Jesus and and gave that stuff away, what happened? The word of God increased and prevailed in that city. And Paul did not have to denounce the idols of the city for that to happen. You know what he did? He preached a better way. He preached the beauty and the glory of Jesus and the weight and the beauty of God's truth in the gospel overwhelmed the hollow and ugly trivialities that people were giving themselves to and they had enough. I came across a story uh, this week. I was reminded of a story from uh, the Welsh revival that's in Wales in 1904. 100,000 people came to Christ in nine months. And, and someone was kind of reliving that and, and commentating on it, and they said this about the Welsh revival. The mighty, unseen breath of the Spirit was doing more in a month than centuries of legislation could accomplish. 
Because when you change the heart of man, man changes his behaviors. You don't legislate his behaviors. And I wish American Christians would stop trying to legislate the morality of America and pray that people's hearts would be transformed. Because, as my friend Ray says, gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. When people are enamored by the beauty of God and give themselves to the truth of the scripture, it changes the way that we live. And so heart by heart, person by person, culture, cities change, cultures change. One heart, one person at a time. Still with me? All right. I got 20 verses to read. <laughs> Someone do that real quick, and then we'll talk about them, and I'll get you out of here as soon as I can. <clears throat> this, is the, this is the really fun part, though. Ready? Uh, verse 21. So the word of the Lord increased and prevailed mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, that's Corinth, and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after, that, after I've been there, I must also see Rome, uh, which is where he will eventually die. Having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while, actually another year, roughly, three years in total, he was in Ephesus. About that time, there arose, Luke's language, no little disturbance concerning the way, that's the Christian movement, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with, his workmen, with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. So we can see what this is really about. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but also in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So now he's turned it into a religious argument, see? Not a financial one. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them uh, Gaius and Arist uh, Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried one thing, some cried another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. So American. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, mentioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! It's like, we get it, man, okay? And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are in danger. We are really in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Everybody went home. Okay. Last point, I'll try to be brief here. The gospel redefines cultures. Paul's been seeing the Lord do some amazing things, but three years is the longest he's stayed anywhere, so it's time to move on. He's prompted by the Holy Spirit that he's got to move on. And he's going to retrace his steps through uh, Europe and then go to, back to Jerusalem and then go to Rome. But here's, here's what's happening. Enough people in Ephesus have become believers in Jesus that it's making an economic impact on the city. People are worshiping Jesus instead of Artemis or these other false gods, which means they are not 
no longer buying idols and shrines and all the sort of accoutrement that you need to continue in your idol worship. Which, by the way, an indicator that you might have a false religion is if they have a store that you have to buy from and to keep it going. Okay? And so, Demetrius in particular, his business is suffering, right? So this is a financial argument for him, but he's a smooth talker, and he turns it into a religious argument. And he says, look, Paul, you know, he's pulling all these people away from worshiping Artemis, which is affecting us financially, but also it's going to affect Artemis and her temple and all that. And people are like, no way. And so he incites this January 6th style riot. And, and similar to that, a lot of confusion. People don't know why they're there. They're just sort of following the crowd. And they end up inside the Capitol. And they're like, why am I here? I don't know. Let's take pictures. That's what happened. Literally, it's what happened. But really what this is all about, for Demetrius at least, is that the gospel is a threat to his way of life. And again, Paul did not have to protest Artemis. He did not denounce the idolatry of the city. You know, even in Acts chapter 17, when he um, addressed the council at Mars Hill at the Areopagus, he was respectful, wasn't he? He said, you're worship- I see that you're very religious. You're worshiping an unknown God. Can I explain to you who that is? He wasn't saying, y'all are idiots. Let me explain something, right? He didn't come in brash. He came in humble and trying to be respectful. But the truth of Jesus was more compelling. And when the Lord changed people's hearts, people changed their habits. So I got to thinking about this, and I was thinking, what would happen in American culture? Let's step, you know, kind of more broadly than Asheville. What would happen in American culture if Jesus fundamentally changed our relationship with things like food, money, possessions, entertainment, sex, the way we use our time. You know what happened? Probably an even greater recession than we've been through. Because all of the businesses that support our idolatry would start to suffer. And there would be a revolt. Because this Christian gospel is uprooting our way of life. And it would be glorious. People love their idols and they do not want to let them go. And idol suppliers don't want you to let them go either. So I kind of alluded to this earlier, but let me ask the question. Is there anything in your life right now that if Jesus said to you, you need to put it down, you'd have a really hard time? Is there anything that you are holding on to currently that if Jesus was like, hey, this has to go, you need to let it go, you need to put it down, you need to walk away from it, that it would fuel anxiety and a little stress, and you go, how am I going to live without that? That's a signal of an idol. Now, Paul never backed down from a crowd. He sees these thousands of people gathering in this arena, and he's like, hey, you came for my sermon. Awesome. Uh, But his friends won't let him in. That's probably wise, because his mission wasn't done, and they probably would have killed him. So they keep him out. Uh, His friends and disciples, they won't let him go in. And the town clerk, you know, he comes up and he basically doesn't take the gospel seriously. He's like, look, we all know the real truth is Artemis and her temple and this meteor had fallen and they think that was from her. And so like, these guys are not a threat. He even says, they haven't been sacrilegious. They haven't been blasphemous. They haven't threatened Artemis at all. So what are we doing? And besides, you don't have a permit. And so we're going to get a ticket. We're going to have to vacate the premises or we're going to get fined. So you guys need to like, take care of this on your own time. And, and the crowd sort of disperses. Okay, what do we do with all this? An interesting contrast came back to my mind this week. Um, I was doing my Bible reading plan, which, by the way, we're only a month into the year. Okay, So if you don't have a regular rhythm of Scripture intake, whether that's reading or listening, I want to implore you to get a plan to get a regular rhythm. There is nothing that will be more impactful to your spiritual growth in 2022 than a regular rhythm of scripture intake. Nothing. Not even attending church, and you should attend church, okay? Scripture intake. Um, and, and there are several plans out there. I mean, there's a bunch of them. We recommended a few, and I'll, we'll put them back in the loop next week so you can pick one. Don't be ashamed that you haven't started. Start where you are and keep going. But in the, anyway, in my plan, which is a five-day-a-week uh, reading plan, uh, Ephesians 2 was in the reading this week. 
And I was reminded uh, of this beautiful passage from Ephesians chapter 2. Now remember, Paul is writing a letter to this Ephesian church. We, we're just looking at the birth of this church in Ephesus. And then later on, Paul writes a letter to this church. And here's what he says to them. This is verse 19 of Acts chapter 2. It won't be on the screen, but you can listen. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you, are, you Ephesians are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What was the greatest structure in the city of Ephesus? The temple of Artemis. And he says, no, 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 you believers are being in, built into a holy temple. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here's what I love about this. The people of Ephesus got so worked up about protecting the temple of Artemis, which even at that time, at best, was a tourist trap. It was an empty home for a powerless false god. Meanwhile, Paul is reminding the Ephesian believers that they are being built up together as a living temple to the real God, the true God, that the very spirit of the living God was dwelling with them as they gathered together. So like this is so important. You have to understand every one of us who's a believer in Jesus has the spirit of God dwelling inside of us right now. But there is something unique and special that happens when the believers gather together physically in the same place. That the Spirit of God uniquely dwells among us in a way that he doesn't when we are separate. Which is why gathering together is so important. And I know it's COVID and I know we're being cautious and I know and I know and I know and I know. But we've got to be together. The Spirit dwells. There is something unique and special that happens and God is with us here in this room in a way that he's not through that lens. He just isn't. There's a poor substitute for this. And so we're going to be spending a lot of time imploring you not only to come back, but to be here consistently and regularly because you need it and we need you and we all need Jesus together. Amen? So our main calling as a, as a body of believers is not to protest the culture. Sorry, it just isn't. You know what our main calling is together? To be a living demonstration. Imperfectly, but visibly. A living demonstration of the love and mercy and power and presence and glory of the risen Christ as an embodied people together. That's our mission. That's our purpose. I'm going to say it one more time. To be a living demonstration however imperfectly, but visibly, of the love and the mercy and the power and the presence and the glory of the risen Christ as an embodied people together. And when we do that, it bleeds outside these walls. And the power and the presence and the glory and the love and the mercy of Jesus bleeds out into our city. And it changes individuals and it changes communities and it changes culture for his glory. So as we wrap up, uh, I got four questions I want to put on the screen really briefly for us. You can take a picture of the screen when all four questions are up, or you can write them down as they come if you want to. But I would uh, just ask you to really consider these, think on them, and then uh, maybe take them to the community group or whatever this week. All right, here they are. Number one, am I certain of my redemption? Because I never want to assume. In fact, I assume that there are people in this room who are not followers of Jesus every single week. So I'm asking, are you certain that there's a moment in time or a series of events that you can point to historically that you go, this is when the gospel of Christ became real to my soul. This is when I repented of sin and trusted in Jesus. And it may not be a stamp of a moment in time, but you can think back to a progression of events that led you to the place you are today where you go, I belong to Christ and he belongs to me. And if you, don't, if you can't look back on that, if there's no certainty in you, today is the day of salvation. You can right there in your seat say, Jesus, I don't know that I've ever done this before, so I believe that you are 
God in the flesh. I believe that you lived a life I couldn't, perfect and sinless, that you died the death I deserve, that you rose again from the grave, and that I simply am receiving by faith with empty hands what you've done for me. Save me. I repent of sin. I trust in you. Please come into my life. And if you do that, he will save you. He will save you. But you have to know, am I certain of my redemption? Second question. Where have I seen Jesus bring renewal to my life? Or where do I need renewal? Uh, are there things I can look back on and show that he showed me my, my flaws and my need to change? He took things away from me. He asked me to put things down. Or there are things going on in my life right now that I need him to help me put things down and walk away from things and, and, and affect change in my life. Where have I seen Jesus bring renewal or where do I need him? to bring renewal into my life. Third, what old ways am I still holding on to that are incompatible with my new life in Christ? Patterns of thought, behavior, attitudes, right? Issue, like actions, issues, websites, I mean, motivations of the heart. Like what, what are some old ways are things I'm still holding on to that I, I've got to let go to, got to let go of in order to walk out this new life that I have in Christ. And then last, how can I be part of the word increasing and prevailing here in Western North Carolina? How would God allow me to use my gifts, my abilities, my prayers, my passion for his word, my passion for Jesus and for his church? How can, how can I leverage what he's given me to be part of, of God use, increasing the word and letting it prevail here in Western North Carolina. All right, Father, thank you so much for these people. Thank you for our time in your word. Thank you for the patience of these men and women as they have sat for a while uh, under this teaching. And I just pray that something that's been said today would resonate uh, with, with your people and would um, lead us to places of greater trust in the Lord Jesus, greater dependence on the Spirit, and greater fruitfulness in our lives and in the lives of others for your glory. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone in the room who has not made uh, cross that threshold of faith, uh, that you would bring them across the threshold today, that they would be saved today. And uh, I would love to talk with them about that uh, after the gathering. So, Lord, just move among us by your Spirit in this room right now, and I pray that you'd be glorified and honored in our time of response. We pray this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.